Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, Black History Month has always been something of a double-edged sword. It implies that black history is somehow not history, that it has to be shoehorned in artificially to garner its value, with the corollary implication that if you choose to ignore it, well, you aren't missing anything crucial. The idea that black Americans are somehow something other than, meaning less than, real Americans is dumb and toxic and fully in play as reflected in Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell's recent response to a reporter's question about efforts to suppress black people's voting rights, with the statement that, quote, the concern is misplaced because if you look at the statistics, African-American voters are voting in just as high a percentage as Americans, close quote. So there's a reason black people feel a need to lift up our particular history, our efforts and accomplishments, in and despite the context of violent systemic harm we live in, that distinguishes that from the bland and euphemistic vision that usually passes as U.S. history. What matters is how the history of black people is approached, discussed, and integrated into what's happening today. Journalists, of course, have an opportunity to do that work every month, not just February. Last year, we saw some open media acknowledgement of an event previously shrouded in silence and ignorance, the Tulsa, Oklahoma massacre of 1921. The layers of that story, the roles played by various actors, make it especially relevant for news media who, to fully tell it, need to reflect on their own role then and now. We talked about the Tulsa massacre around its anniversary last June with Joseph Torres, Senior Director of Strategy and Engagement at the group Free Press, and co-author with Juan Gonzalez of the crucial book, News for All the People, The Epic Story of Race and the American Media. Torres works, as I do, with Media 2070, a consortium of media makers and activists that are detailing the history of U.S. media participation in anti-black racism, as well as collectively dreaming reparative policies, interventions, and futures. We'll hear from Joseph Torres about Tulsa today on the show. That's coming up, but first, a quick look back at recent press. U.S. news media give the impression that opposition to war is an insufficient principle. You have to make decisive, declarative statements about Russian imperialism or NATO beneficence to earn a place in elite media conversation on Ukraine. But it is enough to simply be opposed to needless deaths and trauma and the possibility of nuclear war, whether you mark it from Putin's invasion today or NATO's reneging on its promise of non-expansion decades ago. It's okay to say human beings are not chess pieces for the powerful to play with, and that casual references to world war should be unacceptable. Near the beginning of February, the New York Times ran an op-ed by Ivan Krastev, a Bulgarian political scientist, saying that Europeans doubted 
that Russia would launch a full-scale invasion of Ukraine of the sort that, as it happened, began on February 24th. But back then, Krostev wrote that, quote, Europeans and Ukrainians are skeptical of a major Russian invasion in Ukraine, not because they have a more benign view of Mr. Putin than their American counterparts. On the contrary, it's because they see him as more malicious, close quote. The idea was reflected in the op-ed's headline, quote, Europe thinks Putin is planning something even worse than war, close quote. And what, you might ask, would the author and the newspaper deem something worse than war? The answer was an extensive suite of tactics designed to destabilize the West in hopes of forming a new European security architecture that recognizes Russia's sphere of influence in the post-Soviet space. In fact, the Times piece made war sound not so bad. Quote, a Russian incursion into Ukraine could, in a perverse way, save the current European order. NATO would have no choice but to respond assertively, bringing in stiff sanctions and acting in decisive unity. By hardening the conflict, Mr. Putin could cohere his opponents. Close quote. Well, as it turns out, Putin did harden the conflict. Presumably the Times would have us rejoice that the threat of no war has been averted. We are in media rest right now. It's not clear what will happen. What we do know is that U.S. news media will shapeshift their supposed moral principles to make whatever happens redound to the benefit of the West and will, by omission and commission, argue that anyone who wants something other than military violence is not worth listening to. That's what they do. What we do is up to us. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. The night just passed of May 31st into June 1st marks a deeply painful anniversary in the lives of black Americans. Listeners will have heard, some for the first time, of the 1921 massacre in Tulsa, Oklahoma, 18 hours of terrible violence in which at least 300 women, men, and children were murdered. Their killings sparked by a newspaper article about a 19-year-old black shoe shiner, Dick Rowland, falsely accused of assaulting a 17-year-old white girl, but kindled by the white supremacy endemic in U.S. society and culture. Businesses, churches, doctors' offices, and groceries in the area known as Black Wall Street or Little Africa were destroyed, along with the homes of more than 10,000 black Tulsans. Afterward, papers like the Tulsa World explained things in ideas listeners will recognize, even if the language is outré. Mayor T.D. Evans was quoted, let the blame for this Negro uprising lie right where it belongs, on those armed Negroes and their followers who started this trouble and who instigated it. And any persons who seek to put half the blame on the white people are wrong and should be told so in no uncertain language. 
The newspaper called on the innocent, hardworking, colored element of Tulsa to cooperate fully and with vast enthusiasm with officials and band themselves together for their own protection against this element of non-working, worthless Negroes. And yeah, there's a lot more. So who decides what we know about Tulsa and what we retain of what we're supposedly learning now and then how that changes anything. We're joined now by Joseph Torres, Senior Director of Strategy and Engagement at the group Free Press and co-author with Juan Gonzalez of the crucial book, News for All the People, the epic story of race and the American media. He joins us now by phone from Maryland. Welcome back to Counterspin, Joe Torres. Thank you, Jeanine. Thank you for having me. Well, listeners will feel the thud of recognition to hear that after the massacre in Tulsa, in which 300 overwhelmingly black people were killed and some 800 shot or wounded, the headline of the Tulsa world was two whites dead in race riot. The story of Tulsa, of Greenwood, then as now, is importantly a story about media, about what newspapers told people and they believed at the time, and then afterward, what folks were told to remember and told to forget. You wrote about it recently for Free Press, and I would refer listeners to that piece. But talk a little, if you would, about the role of journalism in the Tulsa massacre. Well, the role of of the the two main daily papers, the Tulsa World, which was the morning paper and the Tulsa Tribune afternoon paper, were critical. The Tulsa Tribune, for example, in the so-called light that sparked the massacre, but in the initial days afterwards as well, and and going forward in the cover-up, making sure the story is basically forgotten in our society. So the Tulsa Tribune was owned by a publisher named Richard Lloyd-Jones, and in his book about the Tulsa massacre, called when we think about white power structures in our society, when we think about hierarchies and white racial hierarchies in the society, the media companies are a part of that system, always have been. And this was a case in point. So the paper is very sympathetic of Tulsa Tribune to the KKK, basically prints an advertisement about the KKK plans to come into Oklahoma. And then it focuses its coverage more so in May on issues of crime and criminality. They normally ignored black folks in Tulsa unless it dealt with crime. Mm -hmm. But they started focusing more on a campaign of like black lawlessness in Greenwood, the Greenwood district. But the night, uh, as you mentioned in the intro, the May 31st headline of the false attack of Dick Rowland on a, a white teenage girl lights the spark that results in a white mob heading down to the courthouse to demand that Rowland be handed over to him and, and basically lynched. Mm-hmm. There's an editorial that many people believe was actually published in that paper as well that was predicting a lynching that night. But that editorial in years later, and, and also that front page story, about the alleged rape disappeared from the microfilm when they were recorded the paper for historical purposes. But eyewitnesses and folks who were alive at the time 
remember that editorial. Right. So the idea that there was this daily news story that was very sensational in his details of this alleged rape, and then predicting the lynching that night, lit the match, thousands of white folks actually going to the courthouse. And the massacre itself, thousands of white people invaded Greenwood and they torched the whole place. And then following that, the Tulsa world, which is still in existence today, is still a daily paper in Tulsa. All this language, both papers are saying bad N-word. You know, we got right. to get rid of these bad N-words in their community, right? Right. It was a purposeful attempt to blame black folks because what happened as well, the last important details that there was never a person who was lynched in Tulsa, I believe Jewish black to that point. And so, so black residents grabbed their arms, a lot of them were former World War I veterans, and they went down to the courthouse and asked the police if they needed help to protect the Grawlin from being lynched. They were declined twice. And so the newspapers blamed black folks who brought their gun to try to protect someone from being lynched as the agitators of this. And that's how they framed it. It was the black community that was the reason this happened, and it brought great shame on Tulsa. Now the Tulsa white community was responding in kind and trying to rebuild, and black folks need to be very appreciative of this effort and get rid of, as you were mentioning, those leaders that they followed. And a lot of these leaders, including two black newspapers, were burned down, too, as well. The Tulsa Star and Oklahoma Sun. A.J. Smitherman is a very prominent member of the black community and told us a very powerful person. And he eventually, he fled the state because he was actually charged. The black folks in the community were charged for instigating the massacre. And A.J. Smithman actually settled down and he left the state and he printed papers in Buffalo, New York, where he died. Well, you know, you talk about the erasing of the incendiary editorial, and there's been a kind of general erasure of what happened in Tulsa. It, it's kind of strange to hear folks saying the little known, you know, the, this invisible history. And I think, well, you know, I know a lot of black people who've been knowing about Tulsa, you know, but it's true that it is more widely speaking, or among white people, it is hidden history. And that has something to do with media, too. I mean, there's just been a lot of silence around this story. Yeah, it was an intentional campaign. The Tulsa Tribune, which no longer exists, didn't mention the massacre until 50 years later. There was efforts to, to cover it up. There was this white reporter back in 1971 who was asked, ironically, by the Tulsa Chamber of Commerce to write something and commemorate what happened on the 50th anniversary. He started researching this story, and he started getting basically threatened by strangers that would approach him on the street and tell him not to write the story, calls to his house. Someone wrote on his car windshield with a bar of soap, better look under your hood, I believe it was written, right? Wow. One of the things he stated in interviews is that there were still people who are alive who might be very prominent members of the community who actually took part in the massacre. And if you just think about it, the children of those folks who took thousands of people literally took part in this massacre, the everyday folks in Tulsa, and the police deputized. Meanwhile, they declined black folks from trying to protect Dick Rollins, right? 
Mm -hmm. uh, they deputized the white folks to go into Greenwood, set the place on fire, which you did, and then they put thousands of black folks in concentration camps for following that. They just rounded up everybody. And so a lot of these folks, children, they still may be alive as well, and grandchildren. So this, you can see how a cover-up happens, right? Because it implicates the powers that be in the city are going to be totally implicated. And for the newspaper, is obviously, they played a role. They played a role in it. As a matter of fact, when the publisher died, there was no mention of it in the paper at all when he died of their own paper, like his role in the Tulsa massacre. So this is how it happens. And how is this really different than when the Kohanna Jones is going through and the issue of Tanya in North Carolina and all this attack against critical race theory? It's all the same thing. We have to keep that stuff buried in the past and not remember it because you remember it that say it's a potential that you have to when you reconcile with something it's going to be called for repair yeah right yeah and folks don't want to address the repair part like what does reparations look like how do you make a community whole like greenwood right it was a community that was self-sustaining that had everything it needed in that community and it was destroyed again you need a narrative right that's the whole thing with media like you need narratives. You need narratives to dehumanize people. You need narratives to justify the massacre of people. And then you need narratives to talk about how white folks in this community were coming to the aid of those who were harmed. And they're the ones who are like the heroes and the narratives. And often not telling the story is not only the narrative to, to give you political cover, but then not telling the story is another way of just total erasure, right? Absolutely. Of course. Yeah. It's still going on. You know, this whole 1619 struggle with uh, just to recognizing very basic facts and on a nation's history, and you can see the backlash because, you know, at the end of the day, in my personal opinion, the question is whether it's like a multiracial democracy, which democracy has never been fully realized, is it actually possible, right? <laughs> and when you have to reconcile with these stories and histories, it's going to, of course, be called for repair, <laughs> you know? And that's one thing we don't want to do as a country, right? We went over, want to repair. I believe even Joe Biden, correct me if I'm wrong, yesterday when we went to Tulsa, he didn't mention anything about reparations. For, and then three living survivors, there's three black folks who, uh, who are 107, 106, and 100 who survived the massacre. Uh, one of them, Ms. Fletcher, yeah. testified in Congress that she is still financially struggling, you know? Viola Ford Fletcher, 107 years old. She was seven, saying she slept with the lights on ever since, because if I don't have the lights on, how how will I see to get out of my house? You know, like I just it's too much. It's too much to even get your brain around the harm. And it's living history, you know, so I I just want to come back to that question of bringing it into the present because, okay, right now there's stories on stories on this, you know, some are folks like Deneen Brown, who's been on it for decades. Right. And then, okay, here's the wall street journal talking about multi-generational reverberations on family wealth in Tulsa. Here's USA Today talking about how, oh, you know, it's not just Tulsa. Racist mobs, that's their language, have been a widespread and constant concern. We've got TV projects with LeBron James. We've got curricula. Mm -hmm. All right. So everybody who is 
invested in wanting this country to change knows that you take your shot when there's an opening. You know, we need understanding all the time, but you take your shot where there's an opening. But right now, it seems like we're saying, look at Tulsa. It's an example of the depth and the breadth of the hatred, of the intergenerational harm. You know, of the lie and of the silencing and gaslighting and censoring. And I fear that what some folks are taking via the media is Tulsa. What a crazy, exceptional episode in U.S. history. You know, thank goodness we aren't like that anymore. It matters not just to tell the story, but to show that it's not just story, you know. Um, And and so I'm just wondering, like... I'm not negative on it. I appreciate the attention. Yeah. I appreciate the spotlight. My question is, like, what's going to be left behind when media move away, when they're not talking about Watchmen, when they move away from the story of Tulsa? What's going to be the sediment? What's going to be learned from it? Yeah, that's the thing. I feel privileged and honored to be able to work on a project called Media 2070 that the Black Hawkers at Free Press created that's calling for media reparations for the Black community. And the thing, a part of reparations is reconciling and repair. For us, for myself, speaking for myself, you know, the idea that we have to address narrative in the history of anti-Black racism in, in the media system and narrative, narrative that's been intentionally weaponized in order to further white racial hierarchies in society when you think about the federal government now, when we think about broadcasting, we think about broadband, it's been a policy of exclusion. It's been a policy of excluding black folks and other communities of color from ownership of our nation's infrastructure. Powerful institutions have been created by using our public airwaves, by the roads that we dig up and, and, and the broadband that we lay underneath the ground and that our rights away have been used to generate great wealth and cause great harm to our communities by the stories that these institutions tell. Media 2070, which is a project that I'm also a part of, I mean, it, it begins at least with... A dialogue and with an understanding. Uh, Corporate news media are forever telling us we're doing a racial reckoning in this country. And you think, well, what does that mean, an actual reckoning? You know, it has to mean a really dry-eyed, clear conversation that includes actual history and not whitewashed history. And that's why I think Tulsa is... You know, a chance for for news media to say, like, how seriously are you going to do this? Are you going to really tell the truth? Are you going to really lift this up and continue to acknowledge the lessons that come from this? Or are you going to say, this is a weird exception that happened in history and we're only going to remember it now because it's the 100th anniversary and, we're gonna, yeah. you know. Yeah. You know how this stuff often works. People are much more comfortable with stuff that happened in the past, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to dealing with their own, you know, the news media has to deal with their own hierarchies. So, you know, the, the idea of like, as a year since George Floyd as well, the racial uprising that began to happen last year, including newspapers like the New York Times and the Tom Cotton uh, editorial and the Philadelphia Inquirer, firing its editor after the whole Buildings Matter 2 headline. Right. The idea is that, you know, news institutions are invested in a white racial hierarchy. And so it's difficult for them to want to address anti-black racism when they have to address their own hierarchies 
And so we have to do that to reduce harm, right? But also, can we also dream of a world where we have an abundance of resources that fund black-owned media platforms that control the creation and distribution of their own narratives and that are tethered to serving the community? Like, we have to dream of these possibilities while also trying to prevent further harm from happening from these institutions that continue to harm us. It's always a struggle to hold folks accountable, to hold institutions accountable. That's kind of what we have to continue to do. And I don't know how you feel, Janine. You've been doing this for a long time, but, you know, like, uh, I, at times I feel hopeful in the sense of, like, that we're actually having this debate, you know, and actually I hate to see Nicole Hannah-Jones struggling just to get tenure, but there is a public fight happening. Absolutely. You know? I think you know? we're I think we're ahead of where we've been. I think we've got a lot of... Uh, forces that we can marshal as we push forward. Yeah, so that's what we're trying to do with Media 2070. And we have this press briefing for Media 2070 and with the new Tulsa Star, which is the new platform for coming to the community. So there's a lot of folks doing amazing work out there, you know, amazing yep. journalists who are doing justice-based journalism, like movement-based journalism. And so there is a lot of folks who are trying to use journalism for a force of good. And of course, a lot of journalists of color and black journalists who work at our major media institutions who are doing their best against tough cultural circumstances within their newsrooms. Absolutely. To continue to make sure these stories are told. All the stories we're seeing now, is, which is a good thing about Tulsa, is because folks are really advocating in newsrooms to uh, also make sure the story is not forgotten. We've been speaking with Joseph Torres. He's Senior Director of Strategy and Engagement at the group Free Press and co-author of the Necessary book, News for All the People. His piece on Tulsa is up on freepress.net. Joe Torres, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you, Jimmy. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. That was Joseph Torres from Free Press and Media 2070 speaking with Counterspin in June of 2021. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, fair.org. The website is also the place to learn about FAIR's newsletter, Extra, or to sign up for our Action Alert Network. It's also the place to show support for the show, if you are so inclined. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin.